0: Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and and being in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 61. And it's a special episode for Hannah. She is one of this podcast's most loyal listeners. And she leaves really lovely comments on my Tudor Minute YouTube segments. And she requested that I tell the story of Anne of Cleves. So Hannah, this is for you. Thank you for being so awesome. Before I get started, though, just a couple of reminders. First, please check out the Agora Podcast Network, of which this podcast is a proud member. The Agora Podcast of the month is the History of Islam. You can learn more about it at historyofislampodcast.blogspot.com. There is a ton going on in England cast world right now, and I want to make you aware of some of the goodness that's happening. First, last year we did the Tudor Digital Advent Calendar, and that was really popular, and so I'm going to do it again. So if you're on the mailing list, you'll get a lovely festive advent calendar digitally. Of course, I'm not like mailing them out physically. It's a digital advent calendar. And each day, a window opens up to some kind of Tudor holiday goodness. There's a recipe for Wassail, or a Christmas playlist or decoration ideas. And everybody on the mailing list gets it and I'll be sending it out at the end of November, so just make sure you're signed up on the mailing list. If you sign up after December 1st, no big deal, you'll still get it, but sign up ASAP so you can start right away on the 1st of December. Second, the tutor planner is selling really well, and I'm only printing 500 copies, and they're going quick, so be sure to order yours if you want to spend 2017 planning with the tutors. You can check that out on the website, And finally, remember that we're taking a trip to England in late April. So as you're starting to think about your summer holidays, if you want to come to to England with me in late April and early May, we're going to experience both the history and the music of Southern England with stops in Cambridge, Oxford, Ely, Bath, Winchester, Windsor, and the Cotswolds. So you can check out the itinerary and costs. All of that is at englandcast.com. So check it all out. All right, now on to Anne of Cleves. We all remember the rhyme, right? Divorce, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. Anne of Cleves was the fourth in there, the divorced one, the second divorced one, and she li- she outlived all of the others, including Henry's widow, Catherine Parr. With that said, there's a lot more to her than simply being the ugly discarded wife, which is often how she's remembered today. She was universally beloved, even by Henry after they divorced. She was considered quite pretty even prettier than Henry's last wife, Catherine Parr. She was smart, she stuck up for what she thought was right, and she fought to keep her position at court. She also navigated a foreign and very scary place at court with grace and dignity. So I have personally grown to really love Anne. She was born in Cleves, hence her name. It was a small principality in the German states. Through her ancestors, she was related to most of the great princes of Europe, especially Charles V, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Anne's father was one of the noblemen who actually went with Charles when he visited England in May 1522. And her father, of course, would have taken the same route to London that his daughter would take as Queen 18 years later. Here's a random fun fact Anne's grandfather, John II, Duke of Cleves, was nicknamed the Baby Maker because he had. I'm not kidding you. 63 illegitimate children, all fathered before he married Anne's grandmother at the age of 31. So he was a very busy man. Her own father was much less ostentatious. He was nicknamed the simple. He really enjoyed extravagant clothing, but he didn't have a lot of intelligence, hence the nickname. John was smart when he made a brilliant marriage to Maria. She was the only child of the Duke of Juliersburg with over 4,000 square miles of land, and together the territories combined to create a really important base of power on both sides of the Rhine. Maria brought up and educated her daughters. She had three daughters. She taught them everything they would need to know as the wives of German princes, but not a lot more. So Anne was able to read and write But she didn't speak any other languages besides German. And it's often mentioned that Henry didn't like Anne, in part because she wasn't very clever. But Jane Seymour, his third wife, had had an education pretty much as limited as Anne's. And Anne did learn English quite quickly, so it was evident that she was intelligent enough. In short, her education would have been perfect as the wife of a German Duke or prince, but as the Queen of England, it wasn't going to cut it, at least as far as Henry thought. One thing they did have in common was religion. Anne's father, John's religious viewpoints were very similar to Henry's. Neither Cleves or England recognized the Pope's authority. But like England, Cleves was by no means Protestant in the 1530s. The alliance with England was not something new when Anne married Henry. Throughout her childhood, there had been some attempts at building a relationship with England. In 1514, Henry had provided troops for the Emperor's War with Gelders, another German principality but by the 1530s, they were opposed again. The Duke of Saxony sent ambassadors to Henry in 1529. Henry had also received other attempts at friendship, and the Schmalkaldic League, a league of German states, made early attempts to build a relationship with England. And in 1531, they sent ambassadors to the king. Henry was particularly interested in a relationship with Cleves because it had the most powerful states, two earldoms, and many towns that were very strong and had a lot of people. And if England was in danger, Cleves would be able to raise an army on the continent. This idea of an alliance early on was meant to be with Henry's daughter, Princess Mary, marrying Anne's brother. But that's not how it worked out. (laughs) This all predated 1537 when Henry began looking for a fourth wife. Within days of Jane Seymour's death in 1537 in October, there was already talk of who Henry was going to marry next. This sounds cold, and it was, but it was also dynastic politics. Henry had finally had his male heir, but England couldn't be secure with just one infant son. This was the first time in Henry's marriage career where he didn't know his wife or have her lined up before marrying. And in fact, when he had married two English women, it caused a stir on the continent. It just wasn't done. A king's marriageability was way too important of a foreign policy tool to be spent just in England. So Thomas Cromwell, Henry's chief minister, initially wrote to the French king thinking that a French king's daughter or one of his relatives might be a good choice. By the end of 1537, ambassadors throughout Europe had been told to search the courts for a bride. One early report from John Hutton, Henry's ambassador to the Netherlands, provided a report of the ladies in that area. He talks about the different ladies waiting on the queen, different widows, and then there's a sentence that the Duke of Cleves has a daughter, but there is no great praise either of her personage or beauty. Hmm. But most people, I don't think anybody would have seen her when they were reporting on this. So it's all hearsay. This was also the time during which Henry was considering marrying Christina of Denmark. She was the Duchess of Milan. She was just 15 years old. And there's this famous story of her responding that if she only had but two heads, she would be happy to give one to Henry. But this is likely apocryphal. Christina probably would not have said something like that publicly. And she actually kept the marriage game going on for a year. She received ambassadors, she sent a portrait of herself to Henry, she sat for Hans Holbein, Henry's portrait artist. And when Henry Henry received the portrait, he ordered musicians to play and for the first time since Jane's death a year before, the court seemed festive. He was very excited to marry Christina of Denmark. But then things fell apart as foreign policy changed between France and the Emperor. The French king decided to make an alliance with the Emperor. This both upset and frightened England, and Henry increased his suit of Christina. She would be a stabilizing figure as she was related to the Emperor. But things began to turn really sour and cold for Henry. And by January 1539, it was obvious that this was not going to happen. There wasn't going to be a marriage between Henry and Christina. In January of 1539, Francis and Charles V, France and the empire, signed the Treaty of Toledo. And this is where they promised to each make no new agreements with England unless the other one consented. Just a month before in December of 1538, the original bull of excommunication against Henry, which had been frozen since it had been issued in 1535, would be brought into force after Christmas, the Pope announced this and the Pope sent Henry's cousin, Cardinal Pole, he'd been living in exile. Uh, The Pope sent him to France in order to persuade Mm -hmm. France to start a holy war against Henry. So, you know, things weren't really going so well for Henry abroad. And then he got word that the emperor and the French king were going to withdraw their ambassadors to England. This was all very, very frightening for Henry and England. And they began looking elsewhere for a new marriage. And their eyes landed on Cleves. And so the marriage game began. Ambassadors were sent to the court in Cleves, And while they were received favorably, they reported that they were unable to get a clear view of either Anne or any of her sisters. When they complained about this, the response was sarcastic. What, would you want to see them naked first? So at that time, they kind of took offense to that. In the summer of 1539, Henry sent Hans Holbein. By this point, he was racking up all kinds of air miles on these painting gigs throughout Europe. Henry sent him to Cleves to paint Anne. Anne's portrait, which by now is so famous since everybody thinks it was embellished to make Anne look prettier, was actually really well received in Cleves by the English ambassadors, and everybody responded that it was a really good representation. One thing about the portrait is that it was painted with Anne looking right at the painter, and as such, it didn't show what may have been a rather large nose. So that's one thing. But in general, everybody agreed that it was a good likeness. Protestants were initially cheering the marriage, both in England and in Germany, and they were going to be disappointed. They initially thought that it'd be really good for Protestants, since both Germany was starting to lean Protestant and England was starting to reform. But Henry showed that he was not going to embrace reforms. And in fact, Anne remained a Catholic until she died. Henry, in June of 1539, passed through Parliament the Act of the Six Articles, And this outlined what everybody in England needed to believe. And it was clear that Henry was trying to protect traditional religious worship. And it affirmed things like the miracle of transubstantiation, where the communion bread literally becomes Jesus's flesh. It also laid out the penalties for disobeying these acts. And some Protestants would call it the whip with six strings, because it was the six articles. Get it? Whip six strings, six articles? Clever. By early autumn, the alliance with Cleves was moving on, and ambassadors from Cleves arrived in England. They laid out the terms of the marriage in Windsor over a couple of weeks, agreeing to things like the number of attendants that Anne would have and the preparations for her journey. They also laid out the provisions for her widowhood, which was important because Henry was so much older than her. Anne made preparations to leave Cleves, and Henry wanted her to come as quickly as possible. This would mean a winter journey, which would be difficult even for the best travelers going on their own. With a train of royalty, it was going to be nothing short of a Herculean feat. There weren't even good directions for people sailing across the North Sea, which might have been necessary if a land route was unavailable. Even before the marriage treaty was signed, Henry sent pilots to navigate the journey by boat and create a log. And it's one of the earliest surviving logs like this that we have from England. But with that said, the idea of a sea journey was terrifying for Anne. She'd never even seen the sea. And so they went after the land option. All during this time, Henry was anxiously awaiting his bride. He was convinced that he was already in love and he was feeling very romantic and amorous. Call it a midlife crisis, but he was suddenly this handsome prince courting his princess, and he had convinced himself that he was already madly in love. He spent a lot of time ensuring that Anne was going to be comfortable on her journey, which is really quite touching considering his reputation. He ordered 10 of his finest ships to be fit out to transport her from Calais, and he began renovating the Queen's apartments in all of his palaces. He also made sure that every town where Anne would pass on her way to London was ready. And the most important, of course, was Calais, Anne's first taste of English soil. Something else Henry did for Anne was anticipate her need to learn English. And so he sent a Mistress Gilman to Cleves in order to become one of Anne's ladies and teach her the language and customs of England. He also started asking about German customs that he could learn in order to make her feel more comfortable and at home when she arrived. And all of this makes me have quite a soft spot for Henry at the moment. During this time, Anne was preparing to leave her home, knowing that she likely wouldn't see her parents or her siblings again. She received a new wardrobe of clothing, but all the clothes were cut in the German fashion, which of course Henry wasn't going to like so much when she arrived. So it was kind of a waste of money. Things took longer than expected, as things like this often do, and England as a whole was just waiting with bated breath for the queen to arrive. The women especially were looking forward to having a queen to serve. There hadn't been any jobs at court for them. So a queen coming would mean that they could come back to court and serve as ladies-in-waiting. When Anne finally left, it was with a train of 263 people, and given that it was already late November, they made slow progress. She reached Antwerp on December 3rd, In Antwerp, there was a large population of English merchants, and Cromwell had ordered them to make a house ready for her and to provide entertainment. A feast was held in her honour, and it was the first real experience she had of being received as the Queen of England. On December the 10th, she reached Calais, where there was a huge reception. Henry had ensured that no expense was spared to impress his new bride, and the gentlemen and ladies were all dressed in blue velvet and crimson satin and cloth of gold. The early reports of Anne throughout her journey all show a woman who was really agreeable, generally very friendly and happy, obliging, wanting to be helpful. Nobody mentions her being anything other than pretty and very gracious. She was forced to stay in Calais longer than expected because of the weather And she took it all in stride. She even asked to be taught a card game that she knew the King liked to play so that they would have something in common when she arrived in England. There's no evidence that anyone in Calais noticed anything that would make her anything less than pleasing to the King. Later on, people would say that they noticed that she wasn't so pretty or whatever, but that was later. In the initial reports, everybody thought she was just fine. Anne finally arrived in England on the 27th of December. And while she was tired and wanted to rest, she still had to go through all of the formalities of receptions and official welcomes. And she was likely really overwhelmed by all of the people with the foreign language and the foreign customs and none of it she fully understood. And she was just kind of being led around from place to place having to be polite and friendly and queenly and gracious. So I can only imagine how exhausted she must have been after a month of traveling and and going through the snow in the winter and the rough passage to Calais, it must have been really difficult for her. And this is where things start to go sour. The idea of a king visiting a new queen in secret wasn't new. It was this chivalric idea. And the thought was that the king would show up delivering a message or something with a group of other people. And And the new queen would recognize him immediately since they were in true love and their souls would match and everything like that. Henry VI did it with his wife, Margaret of Anjou, bringing her a message dressed as a squire, and she wound up keeping him on his knees the entire time she read the message, which was not an auspicious beginning. You'd think these kings would learn that it wasn't a very good idea, but Henry didn't. He rode from Greenwich down to surprise Anne, And there are a number of accounts of their first meeting, but apparently she was standing at the window watching a bull baiting and barely paid any attention to him when he showed up dressed as a squire with a bunch of other noblemen. He even came over and tried to caress her and kiss her. And she was probably really weirded out by this overweight old man just kind of touching her inappropriately. One would think that she would have kind of put it together that only the king would try to be that friendly with her. But like I said, she was also probably really tired, really kind of over the whole thing, and she just didn't realize. So of course, this embarrassed Henry. And he reacted by saying that she wasn't everything that she was painted out to be. He said she was so different from her portrait, he swore he had been brought a Flanders mare instead of a woman. Plus, he said she smelled. Now, the problem is, Henry kept Hans Holbein in his service until he died. So one would think that if she had been that different, he would have, you know, fired Holbein or something, demoted him, but he didn't. So the likeness couldn't have been that far off. Plus, Anne was probably really disappointed in her own marriage from her side of things. Henry was 49 at this point, and he was already overweight and not at all like the handsome prince he had been even just a decade before. She would have been told stories about Henry. She hadn't seen his portrait. That just didn't happen. But they would the stories that she was told about him would have been old and not taken into account his changes since Anne Boleyn and since the death of Jane. So she probably came to England expecting this semi athletic Prince, who was probably fairly good looking, although he was a lot older than her 20 years older than her. But instead, she found this really overweight man who was balding and wasn't very handsome at all. But they were in too deep to back out now. And Henry went ahead and married her saving his anger for Cromwell and the advisors who pushed him into the marriage. There are famous stories about how Henry couldn't consummate the marriage and how that was Anne's fault. The truth was that he was likely already dealing with impotence that came up during Anne Boleyn's trial. And this probably embarrassed him even more. Poor Anne of Cleves was in way over her head with this one. Henry's logic for getting out of the marriage was to say that she had been pre-contracted before her betrothal to him. And there had been talks about her marrying other people, but she was free to marry. Early on, he went to her bed every other night, and she may not have realized that anything was wrong. There are these stories where she said that she thought that they had consummated the marriage, that it was trying to paint her out to be really kind of a country bumpkin who was naive and didn't know anything. And she hadn't been told the birds and the bees, and it was kind of showing her to be this ignorant farm girl. She apparently told her ladies that he would come into bed and kiss her and say, good night, sweetheart. And in the morning, he would kiss her and say, farewell, darling. And she would say, is that not enough? Mm, No. The problem is, these reports are being made in the summer when Henry was trying to find a way out of his marriage. And he was trying to show that it hadn't been consummated. And that was one way, of course, to get out of it. They assume a level of conversational skills in English that she just would not have had this early on. And also, she would have been told by her mother what she needed to do as queen in order to have an heir. So she would have known. Anne soon began to realize that something was wrong, and she tried to speak to Cromwell on a number of occasions alone. And he refused and he always told the king. He knew he was on thin ice and he wasn't about to associate with her anymore. He did not want his name associated with her more than it had to be. She also started to dress in the French fashion, which she thought would make Henry happy. And she persevered, setting up her household, bringing in -in ladies-in-waiting and learning English. One of the ladies-in-waiting was Catherine Howard, and she quickly caught Henry's attention. They were all doing this weird diplomatic dance, pretending that it was okay, and making sure that everything looked just fine so that no word of anything amiss reached Germany. Henry talked of his hope that they would have children, and Anne quickly became very popular in England. But by the summer, though, Anne could tell that something was seriously wrong, and Henry began the divorce proceedings. She must have been terrified knowing what had happened to Henry's other wives when he wanted to be rid of them. Cromwell was the first to suffer Henry's wrath, and he was killed after being held in the tower and furiously writing anything that Henry wanted him to write about the marriage in an attempt to save his life. He wrote letters about her pre-contract, and it was enough to start the divorce proceedings. But Cromwell still lost his head, and Anne knew that she was going to lose her marriage. She was removed to Richmond, ostensibly because of the plague, but she knew the real reason, and she was terrified. Henry called a team of clergy to examine the validity of his marriage, and of course they ruled it invalid. Anne agreed to the divorce proceedings. She knew she had no choice, although she never privately thought that it was true. She always considered herself the Queen and Henry's rightful wife, but she agreed to everything he asked. And he was really generous with her. And in part, it was because he was surprised at how willing she was to go along with it. He may have been expecting a protracted battle like he had with Catherine of Aragon. But instead, he got a very pliable Anne, and he rewarded her generously. He named her his sister, he gave her precedence above everybody else at court except his daughters, and she made only one request, and that was that Princess Elizabeth could come and visit her once in a while. She had grown close to her, and Henry granted that wish. She must have been very relieved when she realized that she would escape with her head, but she was also forbidden to leave England. She was effectively being held a hostage for her brother's good behavior in Germany. Henry also remarried, Catherine Howard, and there's evidence that when Anne came to court at Christmas time, she and Catherine got along really well. They danced together, Catherine gave her gifts, they all appeared to be this bizarre happy family. In fact, she and Henry realized that they were actually quite fond of each other now that everything had worked out as it had, and rumors would persist throughout the rest of Henry's life that he was going to take her back even Catherine Howard herself got worked up about it. And she asked Henry if it was true. And he said, of course not. And even if he had to take another wife, it wouldn't be Anne of Cleves, which that idea that even if he had to take another wife, probably was not that reassuring to Catherine Howard. But anyway, he reassured her and said, no, it's not true. And the rumors persisted. Even after Catherine Howard's fall, Anne herself expected to be taken back by Henry. She still believed that she was the true queen. She thought that Catherine had caught Henry's eye, and now that Catherine was gone, she would be his wife again. She moved back to Richmond, so she would be really close to court for when he called her back. And the ambassadors started making all kinds of inquiries on her behalf. Everybody thought she was going to be queen again, but she wasn't. During this time, Anne had to navigate some tricky political situations, one of which was the publication in France of a book that was supposedly authored by Anne, discussing how horribly the king had treated her. Henry asked Francis to suppress it because it painted such a bad portrait of him and Francis did eventually suppress it. Henry looked into who had who had written it, and he saw that Anne had nothing to do with it. But of course, it could have gone quite badly for her if she had been suspected with it. When Henry married Catherine Parr, it was actually a bigger blow to Anne. And she was very, very upset about it, realizing that she really was not going to be the Queen of England in this lifetime. She always believed herself to be the Queen of England. She always believed herself to be Henry's wife. But the marriage to Catherine Parr really upset her. And she made comments about how it wasn't fair that Henry married somebody who wasn't even as pretty as she was and even the the imperial ambassador, Eustace Chapuis, had agreed that Catherine Parr was not as pretty as Anne of Cleves. So it was very upsetting to her, and she got a little bit mm, mean about it. After Henry died in 1547, her life got more difficult. She had had a good life in England after her divorce, in part because of Henry's generosity to her. But with a new ruler, she was no longer the queen's sister. She was just this foreigner, And the economy was suffering. The costs of keeping her little mini court were very high. And Edward and his advisors saw no reason to keep her living in such finery. And she had a very difficult time paying her bills. Her outgoings were about a 1000 pounds a year higher than her incomings. So they really just wanted to marry her off so that another man could pay for the cost of keeping her. But she only ever saw herself as Henry's wife, and she did not intend to marry again. When Mary inherited things got a little bit better for her at first, because Mary tried to really keep the terms of Henry's will. And she and Mary had become friends, and she participated in Mary's coronation. So she was held in high esteem at court at first. But then there was the rebellion against Mary's choice of a foreign husband, and Anne was viewed suspiciously. So when the talk of marriage for Mary first came up, Anne had spoken in favor of her family as being a place where Mary should should look to marry. And that only makes sense. But then Wyatt's rebellion took place, protesting Mary's marriage of Philip. One of her associates was implicated in this rebellion. So suddenly things were really tainted between Mary and Anne. No one ever suspected Anne of having anything to do with the rebellion, really. But with that said, there was suspicion nonetheless on Mary's part and things cooled off They always remained cordial to each other, but it wasn't the loving relationship that they had had before. She died in 1557. She died very quietly. She had been sick for several months and she was holding the hand of one of her ladies. Mary did give her an appropriate funeral for somebody of her status, but it was generally up to her household to mourn her. Something really bizarre involving Anne took place a couple of months later when a woman showed up in Saxony claiming to be Anne, saying that she'd been badly mistreated by King Henry, and she escaped and came to Saxony. Anne, of course, was dead, but officials looked into it anyways, and the pretender wound up being imprisoned and dying in 1560. So that's a weird little postscript to Anne of Cleves. So Anne was this really interesting character who We don't know much about other than her kind of being seen as Henry's discarded ugly wife, but there was really a lot more to her than that. So there are a couple of book recommendations this week. I'll have them all up on the website with links to purchase. The first is Elizabeth Norton's Anne of Cleves, Henry VIII's discarded bride. There's also a very good historical fiction novel called My Lady of Cleves by Margaret Campbell Barnes. Remember, you can get the show notes, this transcript and sign up for the newsletter all on the site. Or you can also text the listener support line at eight zero one six tesco 801-683-9756, I think that is. And you can also tweet me at Tesco. And those are the best ways to get in touch. You can also get in touch through the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Englandcast. Remember to sign up for the newsletter to get the digital advent calendar because it's going to be fun and festive and check out all the cool stuff going on. So thanks so much for listening, everybody. The next episode is going to be with Tudor Times on their person of the month. That'll be in about two weeks. Then we're going to do the printing and literature edition, followed by a light one on cosmetics. I recently did a tutor minute on cosmetics and it got me really interested so we're gonna do one on that last year I did one around this time on fashion and sumptuary laws so you know we kind of do a little nod to girliness <laughs> right now so have a great couple of weeks you guys and I will talk to you again very soon bye bye blow northern wind maybe sweating blow northern wind blow, blow, blow. Short a in bar Brick, that soul is on seek.